Thanks, you guys. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Oh, good. That's great. Fantastic over here. That's good. All right. Who read Psalm 51? Pretty cool, huh? What a great psalm. What a great psalm. Let me start off this way with a quote from C.S. Lewis on the topic of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis writes this, If you had a perfect excuse, you would not need forgiveness. But if the whole of your actions needs forgiveness, then there's no excuse for it. But the trouble is this, the thing that we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. What leads us into this mistake is the fact that there is usually some amount of excuse, some extenuating circumstances. We are so very anxious to point these out to God and to ourselves and perhaps even others that we are prone to forget the really important thing. That is this, the bit or the part that is left over, even if the other part was excusable. The bit which the excuses don't cover. The bit which is inexcusable, but not, thank God, unforgivable. What we have got to take to him, C.S. Lewis says, is the inexcusable bit, the sin. We are only wasting time by talking about all the parts which can, we think, be excused. When you go to a doctor to show him the bit of you that is wrong, let's say a broken arm, it would be a mere waste of time to keep on explaining that your legs, your eyes, and your throat are doing great. You may be mistaken in thinking so, and anyway, if they really are all right, the doctor will let you know. Isn't that a great quote about sin and forgiveness? Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after he committed some horrible crimes adultery and murder. So we're going to talk and we're going to read that story first before we read Psalm 51. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and we'll see why David wrote Psalm 51. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 first. You have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and then 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So it's before 1st and 2nd Kings. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're just going to hit a few parts here. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of his house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said this, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. The remaining, the next 20 verses or so talks about what David did to cover his sin. He brought Uriah from the battlefield to go and sleep with his wife, but he refused because his countrymen were in battle. How could he enjoy the pleasure of his wife when his countrymen were in battle? So David sends him back out to the front lines 
to get killed. And that's exactly what happens. He gets killed. Picking up in chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Continuing in, ver- in chapter 12. Nathan. Then the, sto- then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, There were two men, David, in one city. The one was rich and the other one was poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one single little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his kids. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a certain traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come. Rather, he took the poor man's single ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely what this man has done deserves He deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, Ouch, David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I indeed have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you will surely die. And Nathan returned to his home. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging psalm. It comes from a a challenging circumstance. Lord, sin, murder, adultery. Lord, we pray that we would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears, that we would hear what you have for us because of it. We commit this time to you, Lord. Have your way this, this morning with us, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So Psalm 51. Let's read that. Now that we know the background to Psalm 51, let's go ahead and read Psalm 51. 
David writes this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4. Against you, Lord, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen and amen. Calvin Coolidge attended church by himself on one particular Sunday morning because Mrs. Coolidge was not feeling all that well. When Mr. Coolidge arrived back home after Sunday service, he quickly and quietly went up to see his wife in the bedroom to inquire about how she was feeling. She promptly reassured him that she was doing quite fine and asked him if he had enjoyed the sermon that day. But he only replied with a very weak affirmation. Well, she says, what was it about? She inquired of her husband. Sin, replied Mr. Coolidge. Yes, and what did the minister have to say about sin? To which Mr. Coolidge replied, he was against it. Clearly. Summary. Psalm 51 is classified as one of seven penitential psalms. As we have discovered, it deals with the heinous sins that David committed toward Bathsheba and Uriah after he had been rebuked by Nathan, a prophet and an advisor to David. Leviticus 20.10 will be on the screen. It says this, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, surely this man shall be put to death. Numbers 35, verse 31. Moreover, don't take ransom for the life of a murderer, but he shall surely be put to death. One may wonder, perhaps, why David was not punished with death as he had so sternly advocated for the guilty man in Nathan's story. As we have just read, adultery and murder both were sufficient cause for execution, even for a king. The answer surely lies in the genuine and contrite repentance, repentance which David expressed 
not only in the presence of Nathan, but more fully here in Psalm 91 or Psalm 51 before the Lord. David's sin was heinous indeed, but the grace of God was more than sufficient to forgive and restore him, and as Nathan could testify, and that's true for us as well. There is nothing that God's sin or God's blood will not cover. No sin too great for God. We can all be forgiven and restored, each and every one of us. And I believe in the church today, people hold on to stuff that they think God can't forgive. And He can. And He wants to restore us because of it. However, though David could be restored to fellowship with his God, the impact of his sin remained and would continue to work its sorrow in the nation as well as in David's personal life. Tragic. So what do we make of David at this point? Do we have less respect for David because of his horrible sin? Do we have more respect for him because of his humble confession? Maybe we're neutral because although he confessed, he only did so once Nathan actually said something to him. Consider, turn to your left of Psalms and go to 1 Kings. Consider 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings is after 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. First Kings chapter 15, verse 4. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Wow. As a devoted follower of God, David was stellar. David's life was stellar. According to this verse in 1 Kings, this was David's only infraction. Clearly, and hear me where I'm getting at, if anyone had earned the right to have a letdown, David was that guy. He's been good for a long time. One sin, how bad can it be? I think oftentimes in the church we're tempted by that same logic. We do good for a while. I've been saved for 35, going on 36 years now, and I've had those thoughts, and I've actually given into that kind of stupid thinking. Honestly, I've been doing good for a while. You know, and it gives us an excuse to do something sinful. Honestly, we need to be careful. Consider also what King David could have done to Nathan for confronting him in the first place. But instead, as we saw in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I pray that we, like David, will always respond in humility when confronted with the reality of our sin and shortcomings. I pray that we, like David, all have Nathans in our lives, at least one. Do we have one Nathan in our lives? I have multiple. And these men can ask me anything, look at anything. They can plow through my checkbook. They have every right to every aspect of my life. I'm just not that good. I can't, I, I just, I have to have that. And I'm thankful that I do. Perhaps for some of you, this might be your biggest takeaway from this morning, is getting a Nathan in your life. Perhaps this is a perfect timing for me to give a shameless plug to join a small group. Right? Join a group. Get a Nathan in your life. I pray that we, like David, recognize that it is God that we sin against, first and foremost. 
if we indeed weigh all of our actions against God's standards, not man's, we're going to have a deeper and a truer sense of the humility needed to be pleasing to God. Consider this, for example, how often do we slander someone with our tongues, though they hear nothing of it? How often do we commit adultery in our hearts, though we never exchange a word with that person? How often do we covet what another person has, though we speak nothing of it? In none of those cases did we sin to a, to a person, but we sin towards God. As I studied and wrestled with Psalm 51, there are four things that jumped out at me. It appears that these four components, as found here in Psalm 51, are key elements into an ongoing relationship with the Lord and provide a really big challenge. Here, here are the four. I'm going to talk about these in a second. I always get nervous to preach. I just do. I'm always a little extra nervous when I feel like God has a challenging word for us. And so I feel like God has a challenging word for us this morning. All right? So I'm a little nervous. If I do anything to step on your toes, let me know about that. But if God does something to step on your toes, let him know about that. Is that all right? Okay? So these are the four things that jumped out at me. David got real in how he failed God. That's the first thing in Psalm 51. David got real. David had a reality of how he failed God. And then David made a bunch of requests to God. He starts asking God for things. Why? Because David remembered who God was. He knew God's character. And so he felt comfortable expressing his failings to God. He felt comfortable making requests to God because he remembered the character of God. And this is the part that's going to be the challenging part of the message later on, which was David's resolve for God. So David confronts his failings, he makes his requests, he remembers who God is, and then he has a resolve. What's he going to do about it? Was David a prophet, a priest, or a king? A king, you're right. Good guess. David was a king. And what I love about that is kings do what? They, they kick butt and take territory. They move forward. They advance the kingdom. They advance the cause. And so David takes this in and he says, how can I advance? How can I take territory? That's the challenge for us this morning, and that's what I'm going to unpack as we go. Fair enough? So let's look at the first thing. Let's look at David's reality in how he failed God. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. In verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. God, against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. David got real about how he failed God. Very honest about his failings with God. If you remember back to Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, it should be on the screen. When it talked about the person who's forgiven, and it ends in verse 2, the person who, that, that's blessed when their transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and, and the Lord does not impute their iniquity, is the person in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. It is he who has no deceit in his spirit, meaning complete honesty with the Lord about our shortcomings and our failings and our sin. That's who God will forgive. That's who God wants to work with. And David remembers that about God. And so he gets honest with God. David is facing his reality of failing God in regards to Uriah and Bathsheba. But not only does he face the reality of his sin in particular, he recognizes his sinful nature in general. And that's what verse 5 says. Heck, I was born this way. We're sinners. And so we have this general sin nature, and then we have these particular sins. 
What does David mean? And we talked about this a little bit about the first part of verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. David certainly had committed sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, for sure. But his greatest responsibility was to the Lord. Godly Jewish people saw all sins primarily as offenses against the Lord, and so should we. The good news for both our general sin and our particular sin is found in 1 John chapter 1. If you want, it's just before the book of Revelation in the New Testament towards the very end. The good news about our sin, both general and in particular, can be found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. First John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth does not reside in us. If we confess our sins, praise the Lord, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. All means all, that's all, all means. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Our specific and our general sin is all forgiven by God. Dr. Carl Menninger says this about sin. He says, hey, sin really does exist. The famous psychiatrist is distressed that modern society tries to figure out its problems and talk about morality without ever mentioning the word sin. He is convinced that the only way to raise the moral tone of present-day civilization and deal with the depression and worries that plague clergy and pastors and psychiatrists, etc., and ordinary folk is to revive an understanding of what sin is. We need to be okay in facing the reality of our failings with God and when we sin. Call it what it is. That's the first thing. So now David goes into making requests from God. At this point, I'd like to point out that David is rather needy. David's a little on the high need society. David's request from God. In Psalm 51, David asks a lot from God. You don't have to turn there. Philippians 4, 6 says, Let your request be made known to God. And that's what David does. Let your request be made known to God. And so David does that. Boy, does he do it. Starting in verse 1. 20. He's going to list 20 things that he makes requests for in these 19 verses. Start at verse 1. He says, be gracious to me. Also in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. That's number 2. Go to verse 2. Wash me thoroughly. Also in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. Jump to verse 7, and then we're just going to rip through them. Purify me with hyssop. Wash me. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's 15. Number 16, sustain me with a willing spirit. Down to verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Verse 15, open my lips. Verses 18, verse 18, do good design, build the walls of Jerusalem. Twenty requests. A few should have been fine. Like after five, God's like, dude, I get the point. You're in need. He just lets him rip, man. Twenty. What's great is the very first one he starts off with is be gracious to me. He asks for God to be gracious. 
if God's not gracious. And David remembers that about God. Whatever else that comes after that's not really going to matter. So because God's gracious, he just lets it rip. It's also interesting to me that of the 20 requests that David makes, here's the breakdown. 18 of them are what I would call in the positive category. Do be gracious to me. Do blot out my transgressions. Do wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Do cleanse me from my sin. 18 of them. And they're really just about David and the things that are wrong with him. But two of them are what I would call negative. Don't do these things. Just two of them. And those are found in verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Interesting. Is David essentially saying, Lord, it would be great if you can do the 18 things, but even if you can't, boy, don't do these two things. Don't remove your presence from me and don't remove my presence from you. You may have heard it said that God separates us from our sin, but our sin separates us from our God. David surely cannot live with being taken from the Lord's presence and the Lord's presence being taken from him. David probably had in mind his predecessor, Saul, who was removed as king for his sin and the departure of God's spirit from him. What I really think was going on for David is he's saying, man, if I'm capable of murder and adultery when you're present, what am I capable of if you're not? Imagine that. So that's the second thing. David has no problem making requests of his God. Why? Because of the third thing. David remembers his God. He calls on God, the things that he remembers of his God. Look at verse 1. What does he say? Be gracious to me, O God, according to what? According to your loving kindness. God is loving. It's because he knows that he's able to be honest with God and make requests of God. In the latter part of verse 1, according to the greatness of your compassion, God is loving and He's compassionate. God is loving and He's compassionate. One of the things that I worry about in any setting, in, in, in churches, you know, we, we use church words. God's loving, God's compassionate. But do we really know what that means? That we can go to a God with anything because He loves us and He will show us compassion. What's that saying, Famil- familiarity breeds contempt? Is that how that saying goes, right? That we, we, right? When we get familiar with something, it just, I don't know. You, know. you know what I'm getting at, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. That's what I think happens in the church. But David remembers. And so because he remembers that God's loving and compassionate, he just pours out to him. While the sinner, you and I, has no right to expect blessing because of our sin, we can't expect forgiveness. Because the Lord has promised to forgive us based solely and only on His unfailing love and great compassion, as verse 1 tells us. Amen? Look at verse 4. What else does this psalm tell us about what David remembers about God? Verse 4, that he is justified when he speaks and blameless when he judges. So not only is God loving and compassionate, but he's also just. And David recognizes that he serves a just God. Although David does indeed experience the gracious character of God by not being put to death, there is still a price to pay when the judge speaks. The Lord indeed forgave David, but permitted him to suffer the tragic consequences of his sin. David now would suffer the sword as had Uriah. David's wives would be taken from him just as Bathsheba had been stolen from Uriah. This was fulfilled by Absalom, David's own son. Wow! When he lay with David's concubines. 
But David's shame would be even greater because in contrast with David's sin, which was done in secret, all these things would happen in the glare of the public eye in broad daylight. You can look at 2 Samuel chapter 16 on your own if you want to read that sad story. Wow. Let's look at verse 6. What else does David remember about his God? In verse 6 he says, You desire truth and you are going to make me to know wisdom. God is full of truth and wisdom, which is what makes him justified when he speaks and it's what makes him blameless when he judges. It means that the Lord is righteous. But it also tells David that his own righteousness stems from truth and wisdom that he and we can only find residing in God and in his word. We need to turn back to the truth of God's word when we're in this place. Recognizing that God is full of truth and wisdom. And lastly, at the end of the psalm, 16, 17, and, and 19, God embraces humility. That's the other thing that David remembers about God, is that God embraces humility. You're not, in verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are humility. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God embraces humility. He delights in our honesty and contrition, our inner loyalty rather than our outer loyalty. The prerequisite for spiritual renewal is humility. The prerequisite for spiritual renewal is humility. I venture to say that some of us need some spiritual renewal in some aspect of our lives, but unless we get humble, it's never going to happen. It's just never going to happen. If you will, turn to Micah, the book of Micah. It's found in the, towards the end of the Old Testament in what's called the Minor Prophets area, if you will. I love looking for these. Micah, this will help. It's after Jonah and Obadiah, right? That, that, that just narrows it down. So you have Amos and then Obadiah, then Jonah, and then Micah. Many of us know these verses, powerful, powerful verses from Micah. To a rebellious people. Micah 6, verse 6. Okay, Lord, then with what shall I come to you? And with what shall I bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to you, Lord, with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Do you take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So now we get into the fourth component, David's resolve for God. I love this about our Bible character, King David, our brother in Christ. Is David's resolve for God. Look at verses 13, 14, and 15. What does David say he will do at the end of all this? I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Verse 14, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, my mouth will declare your praise. For a man that arguably should be dead, I suppose on some level he has to ask himself, why isn't he? David is on borrowed time, yeah? The man should be dead. What better than to do two things with his life, he declares. 
One, teach transgressors the way of God so that they can be converted and restored to Him. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? That's the best thing ever. And two, He wants to joyfully sing of God's righteousness and declare God's praise. Restored joy to us should lead to restoring the joy of others back to God. Restored joy to us should lead us, church, to restoring the joy of others. King David lost sight of building God's kingdom, and for a period of time he focused on building his own. When we are confronted with our own sin and our own death reality, how do we respond? Do we find ourselves grateful for God's grace and His forgiveness? We breathe a huge sigh of relief. Oh, and then we go right back to making ourselves the center of our own attention and the center of our own kingdom. David resolved to do two things. He wanted to focus on God and focus on others. He wanted to focus on God and focus on others. Turn with me to the greatest book in the Bible, the book of Mark. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. The book of Mark. If I do ever ask you what's the greatest book in the Bible, just say Mark and I'll be happy with that. I'm okay with that. Matthew, where is that? It's after Matthew, right? Book of Mark, chapter 12. When PJ's here, he'll try to convince you it's the book of John, but he's not here right now. Mark, chapter 12, verse 28 through 31. So David's resolve to do two things, focus on God and focus on others. It sounds an awful lot like our our Lord and Savior. One of the scribes came to Jesus and he heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus said this, the foremost is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment is greater than this. Christ focused on God and focused on others. If you turn a little bit to your left into Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, this is exactly what David recognized when God spared him. Mark 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. God knew that David would commit his life to the Gospel, to spreading the Word, and so God spared his life. The Lord wants to use our sin, our pain, our deliverance from our sin and pain to minister to others. I'm convinced of it. How is He using you and how is He using me today? What are some practical ways in which the Lord may be challenging you and me to serve Him and His purposes? Brian Thompson, who leads worship, right? He was up here this morning. Brian's in charge of of what we call our servant ministries. If there's anything you want to do to help serve in this church, please get in touch with Brian to advance what God's doing here. Okay? Another little shameless plug. We're fine. We don't need your help. But arguably, you need the help. Does that make sense? Okay? So if the Lord puts that on your heart, please find out what you can do to advance God's work here. Like David, I too want to teach transgressors about God. I want to see them converted and restored to God, just like I am. It's not a bad thing, right? 
Every one of us is dead to rights, just like David was. What have we left to do but to praise the Lord and help bring others back to Him? What if we were able somehow to pile up all of our sins, all of our iniquities, all of our transgressions, and place them right here in these sanctu- within these sanctuary walls? What if we were to collectively proclaim, like David did, that we as a church will commit our lives to two things, singing praises to God and teaching transgressors His ways? If these are the two foremost commandments, how much more of our lives do we spend? How much of our lives do we spend on them compared to other things? If those are the two greatest commandments, how much of our lives do we spend on those two things compared to other things? I'm way more self-absorbed than I need to be. Trust me. I am so guilty of this. And God's challenging me, and it makes me nervous. But I'm learning to be okay with it. God's stretching me. Here's my outline for Psalm 51. You're going to have plenty of time to write this down because I'm going to walk through this. And you can do this on your own if you want, but if you want to jot this down, please do so. Here's what's cool about the outline of Psalm 51. David is real clear about his sin, but he's also very clear about God's grace. And so that frees him up. He recognizes that although he's born into a sinful life, he's brought into a sinless life through God because of God's grace. And so he recognizes through his humility that he has problems and he says, I need help. And then he turns and says, I see problems out there. People need to know the Lord, and so I'm going to help. He's a man that's in need of help, and now he proclaims he's going to provide help to others that are in the same position he was. And then he recognizes that in order for him to stay the course, God requires a broken heart, not a broken back. God doesn't need us to be busy for him. He needs us to have contrition and humility and to be broken before him at all times. A broken back is worthless without a broken heart. Humility. And when all those components are met in verses 18 and 19, we will be a good church and an honorable church. This is the kingly side of David. This is the butt kicker side of David, if you will. I love that about him. What I love about Psalm 51 is this, is that although our lives may not include adultery and murder, our sin is no less deserving of death than was David's. Is that true? Absolutely. By God's grace and God's grace alone, all of us are on borrowed time. Can we, like David, prioritize God and prioritize others? I want you, church, to know that I'm praying really, really, really heavily about this. Like David, I want to lead our congregation well. Like David, I want to prioritize God and prioritize others. Like David, I want to sing of the Lord's righteousness and teach transgressors His ways so that sinners will be converted to Him. If not us, then who? This is a tall order. It gets me a little uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, I understand that. I'm going to pray to close up our time out of Psalm 147, the first seven verses of Psalm 147. And of course, as always, when I'm done, our prayer team will be to my left and to your right. Let me pray. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. 
He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars and gives names to them all. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you guys. Have a great, great rest of the weekend.